Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Our text for this morning is verse 1, and you'll see why. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1, as we continue in our studies in the life of David. If you're visiting, we usually take more than one verse. So I don't want you to be scared away thinking, I'd love to get to the New Testament before I die. The topic we're going to find in this verse, Samuel dies and all Israel gathers at his funeral to lament his remarkable life. The title of our message, Life as it was lament to be. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning for the time up to now. We've worshipped you and we've fellowshiped with one another. We're excited, Lord, to be here and to already have sensed your work in our midst and in our hearts. Of course, Lord, the Word of God, it's so important to to us, Lord. It's so precious to us. In it we find life and truth. It guides us and leads us into and through the transformation that uh, Mike and Alex and Heather and and Jake were talking about on the video. I pray, Lord, that this verse, this singular verse, so important, Lord, in the narrative, Lord, of 1 Samuel, uh, that it would uh, minister to our hearts In some ways, Lord, there's not a lot of new content here, but there's a a focusing of our attention, Lord. It's as if we're at a funeral this morning. And what a wonderful opportunity that always is to know whether or not we're saved and where we're headed. And so I pray that we would uh, either be grateful this morning or we'd be very, very concerned. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said... Amen. A wonderful funeral was in progress. The pastor talked at length about the good traits of the deceased, what an honest man he was, what a loving husband and kind father he was. In the middle of the eulogy, the widow leaned over and whispered to one of her children, go up there, take a look in the coffin, see if that's your dad. I've heard a lot of eulogies over the years, and quite frankly, a lot of them do stretch the truth. The person in the eulogy you're listening to bears little resemblance to the person you knew in life. I can understand the desire to put a positive spin on someone's death, but the time for doing that isn't at death. It's during life. You're writing your eulogy right now. Israel's last judge and the first person to hold the office of prophet had died. The man whose mother had dedicated him to serving the Lord while she was barren, who heard and responded to the voice of God as a youth, who had anointed the first king of Israel and his successor, he had died. It was the end of an era. It was a monumental national event. Like all deaths, Samuel preaches to us about how to live. reminds us that we are working on our eulogies every day. Now, we believe that the coming of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church is imminent. But like the Thessalonians, while we await this imminent return, many have a tendency to fall asleep. And by that I mean they die. I'm ready to be raptured, but what if my part instead is in the resurrection of the dead? There will be a funeral. There will be a eulogy. What will be said? Using Samuel and David, who are both mentioned in our verse, let's think about our eulogies. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the death of Samuel can help you to concentrate on achieving spiritual milestones. 
And number two, the life of David can help you to concentrate on apprehending spiritual moments. First of all, let's take a look at the death of Samuel and concentrating on achieving spiritual milestones. It's always hard to pin down an age for these Old Testament guys unless the Bible explicitly states it. Comparing various timelines and some verifiable historic dates, we'd say that Samuel was certainly in his 70s, probably in his 80s. In verse 1, here's how it reads, Then Samuel died, the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. They buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. The Israelites gathered to bury him, and the only detail we have about Samuel's funeral was that there was lamentation. Now, I have a tendency to think of that as just a bunch of crying. And I'm sure there were tears, but that's not all. A lament is a verbal expression of great grief or sorrow. It's thoughtful. It's not just crying. You find laments throughout the Scripture such as the book of Lamentations that Jeremiah penned regarding the fall of Jerusalem. Laments are beautiful as literature. They often employ analogies and illustrations to tell their story, and they're often performed as songs. And so while there was probably not a eulogy in the sense we are used to, there was lamentation that had content probably employing analogies and illustrations to celebrate the spiritual milestones in Samuel's life. What if you had to write your own eulogy? How would you organize it? It may seem kind of strange, uh, and it is, and you might not end up doing this, but uh, sometimes uh, it can be a a constructive uh, kind of uh, exercise. Every two years, Lamore High School sponsors what is called Every 15 Minutes. How many of you have been through that program? I think Hanford High does it too, but I'm involved with the one in Lemoore because of uh, the Lemoore Police Department chaplaincy. The program, Every 15 Minutes, it derives its name from statistics that show someone is killed in an alcohol-related car crash about every 15 minutes. And part of the program involves certain students uh, participating And they are taken out of class as if they had been killed in a crash. And so the students will all be in their class. Uh, You know, it's, it's real secret. Nobody really knows what's going on except the participants. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of class, a police officer, uh, will come into the classroom. Uh, and he will, uh, and the student who's participating puts their head down on the desk. And uh, the kids are all, you know, hey, what's going on? They, they're giggling and laughing. And then the police officer starts to read an obituary for that student. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously uh, they know that the person isn't dead. You know, some of them shake him a little bit. But anyway, uh, and stuff. And the parents uh, who are participating, they had to write that obituary for their child. Uh, now, that I wouldn't recommend. You want to write your own obituary, that's fine. But I, I, I don't recommend writing one for your kid. Unless you're part of the program, then you didn't hear me say that. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's actually very moving. Uh, it, and, and it turns into a eulogy rather than an obituary. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a celebration of that person's life, what a great person they were and all of that. And it, it really becomes a eulogy. Now, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that a person has died? Well, if you're a Christian, 
Uh, it's what I call the destination question. Where are they? Where have they gone? Where will they be spending eternity? If you're a Christian and you hear someone's died, the next thing you want to hear from the person who's delivering this news to you is, and they were saved, and they were a Christian, so that you can rejoice. And if that isn't forthcoming, then you're a little bit concerned. You're actually a lot concerned. And you begin to gently explore uh, where that person was at spiritually. It's because the most important thing in life is receiving eternal life through Jesus Christ. Because when you have it, you can confidently start your eulogy by saying to be absent from the body at death is to be present with the Lord for eternity. I almost always start every funeral I do uh, with the, those verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To be absent from the body for this individual who is a Christian is to be present with the Lord. We have the absolute confidence from the Word of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this person is in heaven alive right now. Have you ever wondered why people die at all? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's that verse, Romans 6.23. Death is the direct result of sin. If Adam and Eve had not disobeyed God, they would have never died physically or spiritually. They would have lived forever without ever having died. Sin is an offensive word, so let me put it in perspective. Jesus once said, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's Matthew 5.48. So the standard for getting into heaven is to be perfect, to be as perfect as God Himself. We're coming to the playoffs in Major League Baseball. What if Joe Girardi told CeCe Sabathia, go out there and throw a perfect game, anything else, and you're headed back to AAA? Well, those of you who follow baseball, you know it is possible to throw a perfect game, but they're very rare. And even if a pitcher could throw a perfect game every time he took the mound, we're talking about an internal perfection of heart, mind, and soul. It's not possible for us as human beings to be perfect. And so we understand that very few things are perfect. And even though we call it a perfect game, we understand that it's not absolutely perfect. But when we say be perfect as God is perfect, we're talking about heart, mind, and soul. No one is perfect. No one can become perfect. All of us, therefore, are in the category of being sinners. And that's why the Bible says there is none righteous, not one. You may not be as bad as others, or you may have many good works to your credit, but all of us fall short of God's standard of perfection. None of us can ever hope to achieve it by our own efforts. A little girl was once watching a sheep eat grass and thought how white it looked against the green background of the grass. But when it began to snow, she thought, that sheep now looks dirty against the white snow. It was the same sheep, but with a different background. When we compare ourselves to a human standard, we can look pretty clean. But when we compare ourselves to the pure, snow-white righteousness of God's standard, which is His law as revealed in the Ten Commandments, we see ourselves in truth. We are unclean in His sight. God's law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Before you can say you've obeyed the commandments, this is what someone would be like if he kept the law. He will always love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
He'll love his neighbor as much as he loves himself. He's never made a God to suit himself, either with his hands or in his mind. He's always given God's name reverence, always kept the Sabbath holy, honored his parents implicitly, never once has he been angry without a cause. He's never hated anyone, never had lust in his heart, never had illicit sex. He's never stolen even as much as a paperclip or a ballpoint pen. He's never told as much as a white lie and not once desired anything that belonged to someone else. He is and always has been absolutely pure in heart, perfect in thought, word, and deed. Does that sound like you? It sounds like only one person that I know, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's why you can claim this promise. It's John 3.16. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was God in human flesh. He and, his, uh, he and He alone was perfect. He died on the cross to pay the wages of sin for the entire human race. That includes you and I. Now He offers all who believe in Him eternal life. When you believe you're a sinner and Jesus is your Savior, He takes your sin upon Himself and He gives you His righteousness so that you will go to heaven when you die. He declares you Righteous. The Bible calls it justification by faith. He justifies you before God. It's a legal term. And, and we understand it's a, it's a big doctrine in the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to get to it after we're done with Ezekiel on Wednesday nights. It's an exciting doctrine. But uh, just to understand it, it can be boiled down, as all great Bible doctrines can, it can be boiled down to this. Justification by faith means God looks at you just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. How can that be? Because Jesus took my place. And when the Bible says that I am now in Christ when I become a Christian. What does that mean? It means that when God sees me, He doesn't just see me. He sees me in Christ. In other words, He sees Christ and me in Christ. And that way I can be declared righteous because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ having been given to me. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And the only way that I can achieve that is to let God do it for me. I believe it by grace through faith. I'd encourage you to put your name in John 3.16. For God so loved Gene that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that Gene, by believing in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. If you've been born again and you die at death, you will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. You'll find yourself at what the Bible describes as the reward seat of Jesus Christ. The Bible says some of us will not die. The Lord will come to rapture us off of the earth and we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, that's, I'm signed up for that, by the way. Uh, I'm on the list. Of course, we all are. We're just not sure which uh, are going and which are not. Some of us are going to fall asleep if the Lord doesn't return momentarily. And so we too, though, will find ourselves at that reward seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat, the reward seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then 1 Corinthians 3.13 Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, it's really too much for us to discuss the subject of our individual review and its rewards this morning. It's enough to know that we're headed for that. It's, it's a pretty major event, as you can imagine. 
it, it, you know, you're, you're living right now, you're either going to die uh, and, and uh, be absent from the body and present with the Lord and go to the reward seat, or you're going to be raptured and the same thing's going to happen, and, and you're going to have your life reviewed. Uh, we can summarize it, however, in a small spiritual sound bite. I, I remember this from my days down at Calvary San Rendino. My pastor, John Miller, used to say this all the time, and it's so true. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so though we could go on and on about the reward seed and everything that Paul talks about in the Corinthian passages, it all boils down to that. My understanding that my life is passing by. James said life is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it vanishes away. And only what's done for Christ will last. So this awareness that I'm headed for a spiritual review at the reward seat, it ought to encourage me to concentrate on spiritual things in my life. The only milestones that matter will be what was done as a believer for Jesus. Now, that can include all kinds of everyday mundane activities. It doesn't mean I have to do great things for God. It means that I have to be faithful in the little things that God has actually called me to do. And so it's important that none of us think, well, you know, I'm never going to achieve greatness. The religious tradition that I grew up in separated regular people from the priesthood. And there are still uh, religions and denominations that do this. And it gives you the immediate impression that there are some people who are really spiritual. And they're probably going to be rewarded and have, you know, uh, things to do in heaven besides play harps on clouds. But you're not one of them because you're not in that priesthood. You don't qualify. You don't even want to be. Uh, and, and so you, you know, you, you feel second rate. But the truth is, uh, it is in the everyday mundane activities of our life where we bring Jesus Christ to bear in our home life as husbands loving our wives, as wives submitting to our husbands, as parents raising our children, as children submitting to our parents and obeying them, as citizens as employers and employees, where we are representing Jesus Christ, His nature, His character, the kind of what would Jesus do stuff in every aspect of our life. And that's where the Lord is going to... You know, maybe I walk up and I say, well, Lord, I, you know, I wasn't a priest. I, I, I wasn't anything. I was just Gene. I was kind of lame at that. And he's going to say, no, here's some things that, that you did that I'm concerned about, where you were faithful in small things. And then I did give you more to do, and you were faithful in that. And so all of us can be encouraged and excited about uh, everything that we do, we, as long as we do it as unto the Lord, infusing it with a sense of His presence in it and our yielding to Him. Now I want to talk for just a minute about the life of David, because he's in this verse too, and it can help you concentrate on apprehending those spiritual moments. Returning to the verse, at the end we read, And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. David could not attend the funeral of Samuel. If he did, a murder was liable to break out, as King Saul was still bent on killing him. Some of you have been to funerals like this, or weddings, or other family events, where you think, I hope Uncle Gene doesn't show up. You know, and then he does, and he's drunk, and then you have to deal with it, and you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, people get into fights and arguments, and it gets on YouTube, and they get arrested, and you know, all of that. <laughs> Different world we live in now, isn't it? I'm just, just assume you're on camera, because you are. But anyway, 
This was actually quite sad on a personal level. Samuel had anointed David to be the next king. David at one time had fled to Samuel for safety and had experienced an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power. Saul sent armies to, to arrest David and on the way they were slain by the Spirit and started prophesying. Saul himself couldn't even get to him. Samuel was a key figure in David's life, though David may have had minimal contact with Samuel, knowing he was still around, still walking with the Lord, still available, must have provided a great deal of spiritual strength to him in his exile. Samuel had judged and prophesied in Israel for decades. All of David's life there had been Samuel, like a rock, never wavering. When Saul was blowing it, refused to, king, to kill King Agag. Samuel took up the sword and cut that guy's head off. He said, we're going to obey the Lord. I mean, this is a fearless prophet of God. The last judge, judge really, uh, one translation for the word judge is hero. I mean, these guys were powerful men as they submitted to God. And David had never known a world in which there wasn't Samuel. And now he did. David undoubtedly felt he was in a spiritual wilderness now as well. It was a moment that I'm sure he would have liked to spend some other way, at least showing his respect by lamenting. And what a, I mean, I mean, in a perfect world, wouldn't it have been great to have David at Samuel's funeral to write a lament for him? What a lament that would have been, the great psalmist of Israel. And, and, and what a moment at that funeral it would have been, but David couldn't go. Looking at David shut out from the mourning of Israel's hero and spiritual mentor, still on the run, his life topsy-turvy, we realize that life is a series of moments. If you prefer, you can call them seasons. That's the term usually employed by Christians. And we talk about different seasons of our life. But, uh, you know, I, I find that, I understand that, but it's a little bit too restrictive because, you know, I only, how many seasons are you aware of? Four. Uh, actually, in some places, there's only like one, depending on, you know. Well, you know, you, when you drive up to the mountains, or not the mountains, when you drive down Southern California, if you go over the 58 to Hatchapi, what does it say on their sign? The land of four seasons. And, and you think, well, of course, everybody's the land of four seasons. But, you know, there's places where you don't have much of a winter, or you don't have hardly any spring. So, you know, to me, when you talk about seasons, it's not big enough. And so I just think life is moments. It's moment by moment. There are a lot of different directions your moments can go in. If you're a Christian, you're creating your eulogy in all of those moments, moment by moment. God has designed them. He's crafted them just for you. He's completing the work He began in you when you were saved. He's conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. He's making you more like Jesus. Never forget that the greatest work that the Lord is doing is in you. It's upon you. It's forming you. It's shaping you. Uh, I remember my friend Don McClure used to say all the time in different ways, uh, he, he'd say that the, the universe is either a backdrop or he'd say sometimes it's a stage or it's a platform. Everything that God has created around you to sustain your life only exists so that He can love you and work on you and make you into the image of His Son, moment by moment. Here's one of the ways the Apostle Paul once described the succession of those moments in his life. This is from Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all those things through Christ 
who strengthens me. You might be in, a, in an abounding moment, feeling full. Are you learning, though, how to abound in Jesus? Abounding isn't as easy as it sounds. Often it is in times of prosperity or relative ease that backsliding begins. It's too easy to think you're being blessed because of something you've done, because you've earned it or deserve it. But it's always all of grace when you're abounding. If you aren't both grateful to God and generous to others, then you're setting yourself up for a fall in your times of abounding. You might be in an abasing moment, hungry and suffering need. Are you learning to be content while abased? Backsliding is a problem there too, but it's more likely that you'll grow bitter, especially if the abasing, the hunger, the suffering need drags on. Trust the Lord as the potter working with you as His clay. He knows what kind of vessel that you need to be shaped into. You can apprehend, meaning to take hold of each moment in your life. As Paul said, learn to be content. Let the Lord use what He's doing to make you more like Jesus. If you die, the question is, will you lament well? Or will people wonder if it's really you in the casket? You want to avoid that. Is that really Gene they're talking about? So it might not be such a bad idea to think about your own eulogy, at least up to this point in your life. It should follow a simple two-point outline. Point number one, Gene was saved. Point number two, Gene served the Lord. Obviously, put your own name in there. I don't need you to write my eulogy, please. I'll start to worry. We're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord in song in a minute. If you're saved... It's a time to sing from a grateful heart as well as to let the Lord search your heart. If you're not saved, it's a time to give serious thought to your destination at death. As you hear the singing of the saints whose hearts are filled with the wonder of God's love, the Lord can show you that He has placed eternity in your heart and that it can only be filled by Him in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Jacob, in the video, he said he was looking for fulfillment. Every person is looking for fulfillment because the writer to the, uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, God has put eternity in their hearts. Eternity is in your heart as a human being. And it can only be filled by the eternal one, Jesus Christ. And so, you know, Christians, we sometimes sound like a broken record. We talk about people looking for fulfillment or joy or satisfaction here and here and here. And they don't find it because it can only be filled in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because He has put eternity in your heart. It's the way you're made. It's what you were made for to have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these things. And I pray, Lord, that as we uh, come back to You in worship and open up our hearts to You, that believers, Lord, would, would want to rededicate themselves uh, to serving You, to walking with You, to infuse every aspect of our lives, even the most, especially the most mundane, with a sense of Your presence. And Lord, as always, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, they've never been born again. They're like Nicodemus. Maybe they're righteous in, in their own eyes or religious. Uh, Lord, that uh, You would just do a work in their heart and draw them to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.